You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 102, finishing up our month of January and I don't know. Have you figured out the theme yet? So you have just a few days left. The contest will end on January 31st. So you've got a few days, a couple days to get your guess in on what the theme for the month of January is. We are talking about Take Me Home. I think we watched this on Canopy, which if you guys don't use Canopy, it's fabulous because you just use your library card and then it's free. So library cards are free and this film is free on Canopy and it's also, and it's spelled with a K, K K-A-N-O-P-Y. It's also free on Freebie, but that might be with some ads. Take Me Home came out in 2011 and it's written and directed by Sam Yeager, who also portrays the main character, Tom. We know Sam from The Handmaid's Tale, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, The Politician, and of course, Parenthood. Co-star is his real-life wife, right? Yes, real-life wife. Amber Yeager, who plays Claire. Victor Garber portrays his father. His name is Arnold. Lynn Shea is Jill. Christine Rose plays Lynette. And Brennan Elliott plays Eric. The DP is Jesse M. Feldman. We know him from the Interview with a Vampire series, the McGruber TV series, and is it the Chi or the Chai? I think it's pronounce the 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 chai the chai it's like <laughs> chicago right yeah yeah i think i'm but i like the chi it's totally kung fu um uh the filming locations were santa clarita california and new york city i want to back up a bit we also yeah. know brennan elliott from quite a few hallmark movies so shout out to mr elliott all right that's right i remember that when you saw him you were like i know that guy <laughs> The synopsis for this film is soon after Tom starts operating as an illegal cab driver in New York City, Claire hires him to drive her to California after her estranged father suffers a heart attack. The tagline for this film, I only got one for you, a comedy about the road less traveled. Yeah, not not a big fan. Not like uh, it? I think Sam could have done better. Okay. Now, to be fair... A marketing team maybe came up with that? Yeah, that's I mean, what I was saying. I think the writer-director star probably had had a better tagline yeah, himself. I, I do feel like when we talk numbers later, this probably qualifies as an indie film. So it could have been Sam, you're right. <laughs> yeah, um, I do think this is an indie film. It very much feels like it, but it's an expensive indie film because... They're filming in different locations, and it's kind of hard to to double some of these with, you know, Atlanta or whatever. So I, I, I do think they probably had to go on location in New York City as well as Southern California and then places in between. Mm-hmm. So for an indie film, that could be rough. And all of the shots in the car, it looks like some of them are green screened, which is, you know, not terribly cheap, but also just rigging the car. So I would still call it an indie film. Mm-hmm. Yeager began writing the script for Take Me Home in 2004, with the first draft taking him three months to complete, and the second draft two years. And filming took place in 13 states, so they weren't listed in the filming locations on IMDb, so that's why I didn't include them. 
but apparently an Ohio was initially set as the backdrop for the story. So kick us off. Let's see how your theory holds. What was our pickup line? Actually, sir, if you could just take a look now, I'd really appreciate it. Um, pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Take a look, mm-hmm. right? He is talking about his photographs, mm-hmm. and that's a key part of his uh, his character in the plot. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with that. Yeah. So first of all, I love, <laughs> I kind of just love the part where she gets, so she finds out her father's had a heart attack and she mm-hmm. doesn't like to fly. So that sets up mm-hmm. why they're going to be in this car together. Mm-hmm. And she's so upset. She gets in the car in New York City. And he, had he taken the paper off of his cab, had he made it? I think he did. He was just going to drive around and get kind of like some dinner money or gas money. And so he drives a cab, but doesn't have an active license. So he removes the paper that he normally puts on the on duty thing. And he pulls the sticker off the side door so he can look more like he's an official cab driver. She jumps in the car. She's upset. And she says, just drive. And he goes, where to? And she says, just drive. And so she's so upset. He starts driving. She falls asleep. And the next morning they wake up in Ohio. Right. She pretty much asks him to take her to the second location. Right. It's a good thing he's a good guy. Yes. So they stop at this diner. And I really liked this shot because you always talk to me about leading lines. Yeah, I made note of it too. (laughs) And I just love this diner shot with the repeated booths behind them. Yeah, that that was a really good, agreed, really good shot. Mm -hmm. I like it. And I think that's the same, or was the Raisin Rack the grocery store? I believe that was a grocery store, yes. Okay. And I thought that was an interesting name for a grocery store. A grocery store. I thought so, too. And so she's staring at him, and I just love the acting on her face when she goes from elation, because I think she's made a point, she feels like she's made a point, to the realization that, I wrote down that he can't leave her, but it has to be that he's left her. Right. He has, um, she goes into, um, I think he uses the restroom and he takes the opportunity to leave her mm-hmm. and she comes out and she kind of realizes that he's probably, are you an OFT? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just, it was really subtle. It was in her face. It's one of those times when I think how you say that, that the, I don't know what it is, but the human face has like you know, hundreds of muscles or something. Yeah. And it just, to me, showed how this gentle kind of acting, it wasn't overacting, it wasn't over the top. It was just subtle, but it sent the message that she went from one emotion to the other without words. And I would say related to that, although I don't want to belittle the contributions of costume and hair and makeup, but throughout the film, she becomes much more attractive, I guess, is the best way to say it. I wouldn't say pretty. There's like, you know, some quality that she really catches the eye. I think in the latter half of the film, you're like, holy cow, this this is really right. An attractive woman. Whereas in the beginning, it's not that she's not attractive, but I think it's a combination of some of the, the hair and the, the suit, but also her acting is she's not only upset, but she's also very closed off with Tom. 
She doesn't want any part of this weirdo. Mm -hmm. And watching that transition that I feel like when you get to the back half of the film, you're like, oh my gosh, right? This is like totally leading lady. Well, you know, whereas he kind of, I think throughout the whole film has a very consistent kind of demeanor. But I felt hers, she really changed it along the way. And that was pretty well done. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. I wrote down that she wore a lot of, well, she's in a blue suit when when she gets in the cab. And we know that blue and orange or blue and yellow is mm-hmm. kind of a complimentary colored orange. They they set off one another really, really well, blue mm-hmm. and yellow. Yep. And so I noticed that she has that blue suit on, which is kind of constrictive. And she right. had her hair up in a bun. And I, I feel like even her body language, she held her arms like close to her chest. She seemed very small, diminutive. Right. Yeah. She kind of rounded her shoulders probably. Yeah, yeah. And then as the movie goes on, what I notice is like her hair comes down. Right. I think she was wearing a white blouse. So now we see her in the white blouse and the blue mm-hmm. skirt. So mm-hmm. the blue isn't as, mm-hmm. you know, and she just seems more free. She's smiling mm-hmm. more. She seems more open. I feel like she's standing up taller. She looks just more comfortable in her own skin mm-hmm. as the movie went on. And then at the end, in the last scene, she's wearing this flowing blue dress and I think a cardigan, but just looks so comfortable Mm -hmm. and relaxed. And again, just gorgeous. It really, that that arc, right? Mm -hmm. You can see visually, even if you didn't have the dialogue. So very good filmmaking. Yes. And I feel like in that last scene, when she... Well, maybe not the last scene, but the scene when she's getting into the Suburban with Eric, her body language starts to close in again. Right. And she seems very shrouded in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just this oppressive energy, which which she was, I guess. My one beef is I don't believe that they are both this heavy of sleepers. <laughs> so... In one scene, he falls asleep and she's trying to wake him up. And it takes like three or four times of her shouting his name for him to wake up. And then supposedly she falls asleep and they go off the highway onto a dirt road and ends up in the middle of the desert that requires them to walk quite a bit, like hours, because we see time, like we see the sun go down. And I'm like, how do you drive off the freeway and your car would naturally be bumpy and one of them not wake up? So after having seen this film more than once, yes, I believe that when they go walking, I think there's a line of dialogue that establishes that if they'd walked 180 degrees in the other direction, they would have hit the highway relatively quickly. So they, they went on a walkabout in the wrong direction. So, but how did they get there? It, it, it's a good question. It's pretty flat there, like in Colorado, at least where they were. So it's possible that it could have gone off the road. But I agree with you. They did seem to be remarkably heavy sleepers, especially when operating a motor vehicle. Like I could see a person nodding off, but not like, yeah, for 10 minutes. That right. seems, that seems like, yeah, maybe there. She drove so far, the car ran out of gas. Like, <laughs> that's a long Yeah, we can, we can return to that in the automotive section. Oh, okay, um, okay. My apologies. No, for it's fine. I just, here. I do want to come back to that. Okay, okay. 
Oh, when he was stealing food in the hotel, I I was frustrated that he didn't close up the suitcase first. Yeah, that 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 seems basic. Like five year old would figure that one out. It made for good comedy because as he's pulling the suitcase, there's like apples and bananas falling out. But I I also like the comedy where he's unloading it and the family looks at him and so he like puts a banana back. (laughs) Just one banana. But but that actually that 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 played for me like like, as a human would do that. Like okay, here have a banana. I won't take everything. Yeah, yeah, because it's like in the office, nobody wants to take the last donut. So they like cut it in half and then they cut that in half. You know, you don't want to be the person who, who takes everything. Right, right. The scene where they meet his parents, you could easily tell that his father, played by Victor Garber, is not amused. And I feel like you can tell, like mom comes off like a dingbat. She's just, but maybe this is a common, what is it, roles that parents play that one parent can be can overlook their child's, you know, misadventures and the other parent is very critical. I don't know. But it just seemed like she was clueless and dad was just pissed. And we really didn't know why until, I guess, halfway through the dinner when Claire blurts out that he's a cab driver. And it's clear he hasn't been honest with his parents as to what he's been up to in New York. And so then we find out and mom continues. She's just like, oh, well, as long as you're a good cab driver, <laughs> which <laughs> right. is fine. I have nothing against cab drivers, but it's clear that he went out there to pursue his photography. And I think because he was embarrassed and upset that it wasn't going as successful as he wanted it to, he told them, he, he lied to them and told them that he was doing great. I believe there's a line of dialogue where Victor Garber says something about Wall Street. There's the implication that he worked in, in finance on Wall Street. And obviously the cab driving is to make ends meet when the photography doesn't, which I think is realistic even in 2010, but certainly would be in 2023. Very difficult to make a living at photography. But what I didn't understand is if he had the time to be an illegal cab driver and a photographer, couldn't he also be like a legal broker or find some different position. So, all right, but by the premise, by the bit. But that mm-hmm. was kind of, you could see from the house and the clothing and the fact that mom had, you know, a big wad of hundreds tucked in her jewelry box right. that the family was doing well. And I think there's even some talk about a brother that's, you know, a doctor or something. So, so you could definitely see that there was this environment where art was not considered a, a reasonable vocation. Sure. Yep. She feels betrayed that he was, he didn't come clean to her and he didn't come clean to his parents and they've run out of gas. And I just love how she kind of dresses him down and completely diagnoses him and his parents. Right. Like as to what's going on, like she sees it and he's almost, it's almost like he's a little bit stunned that she nailed it so perfectly and like a little impressed too. Right. He kind of looks at her like, whoa, how'd you do that? Because I think from a writing perspective, right, that's where the power dynamic starts to shift a bit. Right. That at first she's a total wreck and he's got the car and and she's dependent on him for everything. There's a line in there. She says something like, you know, about him not having money. He says, no, you're poor. I have $83. (laughs) Right. That line. (laughs) Um, um, That does remind me, though, that this, in some sense, this film 
could not be set today, even if it, I mean, it could be made, but because so much of the film depends on them not being able to talk to anyone or get money. And I think if you had an iPhone, you would text your friend and he'd sell you a couple hundred bucks and prop, I mean, we'd be done. Right. So I loved that part of it because it, it harkens back to a day when you had to kind of survive on your own wits. And I like how they get clever. Right. And, but then also then over, over that time period, it starts to, to have some exposition where she has like a great line in there about like only weirdos have large DVD collections or something. It's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did have an, another little, I, I wonder if you caught this at the end there, at her parents place, he comes clean with everything. And he basically tells her everything about his parents, everything about being a photographer, everything about the cab. He even says, I, I believe he says, like, I love you. He's just like, I think he bears his soul kind of. Mm -hmm. And she says that she believes him and that he will never lie to her again. And he right. agrees. And then she says, OK, then we can continue. Um, I just didn't. I didn't feel that this you've just met this guy a few days ago and I know she has feelings for him and I get it that maybe you would continue dating him and just see, but I feel like you wouldn't be like, okay, then I'm going to believe everything you say from now on. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, listening to a podcast from a friend of the show and one of Sam's coworkers on parenthood, Dax Shepard. People can be very good at lying. And one of the techniques they use is like, okay, this time I'm telling you everything. And they're not. And then you catch them and they're like, okay, no, 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 this time I'm telling you everything. So I too caught that the second time around. I was like, wait a second, why, what evidence does she have that he is going to now be completely truthful? I'm not sure. However, my, my only guess for the character was, she was like, I'm going back to, back to New York City with that guy from the Hallmark movies. Okay, fine. Whatever. Good. We're good. She, was she just trying to get out of the conversation? I don't know. Maybe that makes sense. I felt like it was at a place. That's why I thought it happened once she was. It was at her sister's house after they had sprinkled the ashes. I believe it was like she was getting stuff out of the cab and they were both sitting in the cab or standing near the cab. It was just the two of them. Yeah. And they had a pretty, he pretty much, like you said, kind of said uh, like, I'm into you. I want to, you know, be with you. This is, this is the thing now. And she was like, oh, well, thanks for sharing that. But okay, but and bye. And it's very romantic. It's a wonderfully romantic gesture that, you know, this person who finally did get real with you, because we know that he's telling the truth, the best that we've seen so far. Right. And so for her to say it, it's a beautiful gift to say, okay, I'll believe everything you say. Because it wasn't the first time that he had lied to her. Like she had found out about a couple other lies and then, you know, little ones like he didn't have any money or that he wasn't a cab driver, kind of like, you know, those kind of things. And so it, it just seemed like too quick of a heel turn. I agree. I, I, I don't. But yeah, I don't have any good explanation from a story perspective of of that other than right. If she really was in love with him, was that the rose-colored glasses? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very fair. That's fair. I wonder, what did you make of him using the mirror to look up her skirt? I feel like today he wouldn't include that part. If we made it after the Me Too movement, maybe not. 
I think it's realistic, right? Sure. Um, I think, um, I think in the eighties it would have been like, nobody would have batted an eye. Yeah. Of course he's going to look up her skirt. I think today, if there's an attractive woman who's got a skirt on and her knees aren't close together, a fair number of people are going to look. Right. Isn't, isn't it in pretty and pink? Doesn't. Yes. It's very much Judd Nelson is under the desk and he's trying to look up the skirt of Molly Ringwald. Right. Or no, that's Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah. Is that what we were talking about? No. What did you say? Pretty in pink? uh Uh-huh. I thought the guy in the red Corvette adjusts Mm. the mirror to look up her her sister's skirt or the popular. That that sounds right. When I was in high school ever so many decades ago, (laughs) there's an individual who shall remain nameless, even though I don't support this behavior, who did try to take photographs up girl skirts. This is like right. Uh, it was done. Uh, I know right. it was done, but I guess I if think we're right supposed- now. And there's a line in there, even where he says, when he's coming clean, where he says, "I looked up your skirt yeah. a lot." Yeah, he did uh, come clean. But you know, yeah, I don't know. I agree. I don't know if we would put that in the film today. Yeah. Okay. I for sets, I have it was pretty much almost a bottle up with them being in the taxi cab for sure. quite a bit of yeah. it. Well, unless you do, you have anything else from? like writing or any other parts of the movie you want to address? Regarding the props, Tom is shooting what appears to be Nikon F series, mm-hmm. probably shooting film. The first time I saw this, I was a little disappointed because it looked like there's a lot of extraneous action with the camera, lots of focus ring <laughs> stuff. The second time around, actually it played a little better, mm-hmm. right? This time it wasn't quite so bad, but I thought that was neat. And there was a spot where it was kind of like diegetic versus non-diegetic with the film so that the the actual image we're watching is out of focus and it's moving. And then that becomes what's through the viewfinder. So I thought that was really kind of a clever, a clever trick they did there. Mm -hmm. But also I mentioned that before that an iPhone would have solved many of these problems you can see, speaking of props, he has a flip phone. And in 2011, there were iPhones at that time. So a flip phone says this guy's dead broke. Right. Which is. I thought she had a flip phone too. Uh, she may have. I don't know. Yeah. She had like a Nokia. Yeah. So, huh, curious. I have a note here to ask you about the soundtrack. I love the music that was written for this film. There's a, a group that was formed specifically to record the music for this film called Bootstraps. And its founder is this fellow named Jordan Beckett. And he and Sam Yeager lived adjacent, I think same apartment building for quite some time. And that's why Sam asked him to write some songs. And there's actually an album called Bootstraps, which is the name of the band. And it's one of my favorite albums. I love the music from this, but I thought it was kind of neat that the two of them were struggling together. And so when Sam was putting together this film, he decided to have this this guy he knew write some songs, and they're really good songs. But I think part of what makes it work is the lead singer, Jordan, his his voice, he has this kind of breathy voice, almost like a like with the wind. And I think when you're talking about, you know, these, these uh, vistas, John Ford-esque open spaces, that makes sense that there is that, the, the, the wind. And it, and it, to me, harkens a little bit, you know, to the Western kind of music. And I just really dig the music from this, but I especially love, you know, 
anybody who helps their friends out, who gives their friends work. So I thought that was a neat little story for the music. That's awesome. I love it. I'm going to check out that soundtrack. Bootstraps, you said, right? Yep. Okay. Was there any head trauma in this one? I do have one bit of head trauma at uh, 3157. Claire from the backseat grabs Tom by the hair and slams his head into the headrest a few times. <laughs> so, hmm. Well, that's, um, uh, they're not fighting, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, yikes. Yeah, I have that same note. They're not fighting. So was there a smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. <laughs> uh, not quite yet, but. They never kiss throughout the whole film? Oh, oh, you were, you were segueing. Not after that, not after the, the pummeling. There's an almost smoochie between Claire and Tom at one hour, 11 minutes and 30 seconds in the taxi after Claire finds out that her dad has died. I don't believe we ever actually see them kiss. Oh, wow. Because it is clear that these two love one another. Right. And like I said, there was an almost smooch there. And then at the end of the film, when they get back together, they just kind of see each other. They oh, don't, wow. We don't have a big, well, unless I missed it, but I don't remember that. Which is hilarious because they're married. So it's not even like, oh, well, I don't want to put Yeah, presumably <laughs> they, they know how to kiss each other. Right. Okay. So we we kind of teased it a little bit, but how about a driving review? All right. So the, the, the automobiles do um, feature in this film a little bit. The kind of third co-star is this 1998 yellow Ford Crown Victoria taxi cab. And it's a decent pa- platform, right? The Crown Vic was a good platform. However, I don't know that it's qualified for off-road use. So <laughs> that's one thing. The driving itself, not so good. So first of all, kids, use your brakes, not trash cans to s- stop your vehicle. <laughs> Three separate times, they, they just crash into trash cans. It's ridiculous. Never, ever sleep while at the controls. Both of them fall asleep while, while behind the wheel. This is not good behavior. And eyes on the road, sir. Even when your fare is sobbing in the back seat or has a skirt on and you can see up it, eyes on the road. So really poor driving skills there. But you did mention when they when they go off roading in the vehicle. So a little bit of a bump here for me. They they take it to the, the mechanic and, and he says to fix it. And I did pause the film and I saw that the invoice says radiator hose. So that would not cause the vehicle to not start. It would cause the vehicle to overheat, mm-hmm. but not start. So that was kind of a little bit of a bump. And there, I mean, they could have put the radiator hose back on themselves. That that did not really require that individual to to get involved. That's a pretty simple thing. I think he would have, if he had been driving that car for a while, he would have been aware of that and probably been able to fix it. So that's a little bit of a bump there. I assume that it was supposed to be they ran out of ran out of fuel, but if they knocked the radiator hose off earlier, the engine would overheat. I mean, that's eh, a little bit there. Could have done better there perhaps, but I thought it was a decent vehicle to have basically on this long journey, right? Good cab. Yeah. Well, shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. Because this film was so indie that I could not find its budget. <laughs> But I do know that's Andy. Yeah, but I do know that it did bring in one hundred fifty-six thousand two hundred forty-eight dollars worldwide. So hopefully, it it brought them some 
satisfaction in making it. The good thing is it did win a lot of awards. It won the Audience Choice Award at the Boston Film Festival. It won Best Feature at the Las Vegas International Film Festival, Best Music in a Feature Film at the Nashville Film Festival, and the Audience Choice Award at the Rhode Island International Film Festival. So kudos to all involved, especially Mr. Yeager. It scored okay on on IMDb. It got a 6.8 out of 10. Travesty. And unfortunately enough, critics did not vote it that it doesn't have a Rotten Tomatoes score. But for the audience, audiences gave it 67%. So almost a C. <laughs> I, I liked it much more than that. I would yeah. easily give it a B. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's my favorite film ever, but it's a good indie film. We watched this. I don't know maybe like what five i don't think we watched it when it came out maybe it's been that long what do you I think don't, i don't think so i mean i i Time don't flies. think don't think we saw it in the theater no we didn't um, we saw it here at the house my guess is i saw it sometime during the run of parenthood mm-hmm. so oh, yeah i think you're right um because i think i stumbled upon it through sam yeager's imdb page mm-hmm and was excited to see and then when i saw the the what it was about or the trailer i was in mm-hmm. but yeah i would I, I don't know anybody else who has seen this it's mm-hmm. kind of indie but mm-hmm. i definitely mm-hmm. think it's better than a 6.8 or whatever they gave it exactly it came in at 1 hour and 37 minutes it's rated pg13 it's listed as a rom-com i think it's a no-brainer especially if you get that canopy app and you can hook that up to your apple tv Or you probably can get that on some of these smart TVs and then use your library card and just watch this. It's a great film. It's a nice little rom-com. A rainy day, get a cup of a warm beverage and settle in. It's a a good film. I really like this film. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys, that does it for the month of January. Let's see if you guys can figure out what the theme for the month was. You can call or text us at 971-245-4148 with your guesses or you can email at christy at dodgemediaproductions.com and that it will be in the show notes so you can just click that link and give us your guess what do you think what have we been talking about for the last five weeks and get ready for next month when we will kick off a new theme a mystery theme but never forget dodges never stop and neither do the movies Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.